This is John Holtzman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, our once-a-week effort to try to make sense of this fascinating, beguiling, and adventurous world. Um, we talk too much in political risk about risk, and not often enough about the opportunities out there, uh, because they are everywhere. But today, actually, we're going to be on more of the gloomy side of things, so I'm going to try to make this positive, as I always do, and fun. And this is a once-in-a-while series we've started called Tail Risk Tuesday. For those of you who aren't business types, tail risk is a huge risk that will affect businesses that is less than likely to happen, but is underrated. So something in the 30 to 40 percent, or as we'd say in political risk, something we need to worry about that might not happen. And the thing about tail risks is if you put enough of them together, you can count on one of them coming to pass. And today we're going to put three possible tail risks together. Joe Biden's agenda, the Chinese economic market, and Italian elections. Now in each case, the odds are that these things pass along unscathed and the business and global communities go by without a black swan showing up. But on the other hand, each of these risks has been significantly underrated for a variety of reasons, mainly whistling by the graveyard. Most people like to think that things will muddle through, and most times in life, things do indeed muddle along. But every once in a while, things stop because, as one of our former Fed chairs said, they have to. And so we're going to look at three agendas, Biden's domestic agenda, the Chinese market, and Italian elections, as though they are possible calamities and are underrated calamities, all the while saying they are unlikely to amount to calamities. But one of these three could very well happen, and investors are woefully analytically unprepared for any of them. Let's start with Joe Biden's agenda. I was complaining in Washington as I was about to leave in 2006 about all the pathologies of the Republican Party, all the things that stood in the way of us getting anything done, the shibboleths, the sacred cows that were no longer true but stopped us enacting meaningful legislation. And I was saying this to a very sympathetic Democratic friend of mine who ended up a senior advisor on the National Security Council for Barack Obama. I'll shield his name to protect the guilty. And after listening to me cynically rant for about 30 minutes, he gently put his hand on my shoulder and said, John, for all the problems of the Republican Party, you are indeed the governing party of the United States. Never forget that we are Democrats. Or to paraphrase the great humorist Will Rogers, I belong to no organized political institution. I am a member of the Democratic Party. Lost in all of Donald Trump's pathologies and what do Republicans do with him at present where Trump could easily win the nomination still is far and away the favorite and most important person in the party. People forget who are outside of Trump world that Donald Trump's numbers within the party remain at all-time highs for any president, meaning he was more popular when he was president and Gallup began polling in the 1920s than any president out there since Eisenhower, which is extraordinary, Reagan, extraordinary, Nixon in his pomp, extraordinary, George Herbert Walker Bush. Trump is more popular. So he could indeed win the nomination. But after the January 6th riots, Trump could no longer win the presidency. And I'm convinced that independents will stay away from him in droves all Biden's problems to the contrary. So while Republicans try to work through how can they have Trumpism, which is very, very popular, without Trump and all the things that come with him, the baggage, the, the 
suitcases full of baggage that come with him, we forget that the Democrats have problems too. And this has not been baked into the cake of Biden's agenda. And we've seen this this past week where the agenda hit an incredible car crash. Originally, there are two wings of the Democratic Party, the progressive wing uh, that wants to do everything now and spend money like a drunken sailor and worry about how it's paid for later, and the more standard centrist Truman-Kennedy Democrats epitomized by Senators Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And these senators want social justice and want spending, but within moderation. They actually vaguely care about budgets and leaving our children with debts they can't pay. That also matters to them, largely because of the states they come from. It's important to note that Manchin is the only Democratic official still in power anywhere in West Virginia, which voted for Trump by over 35 percentage points. It's deep Trump country, a deep red state, and Manchin has to be acutely aware of this every minute that he breathes. Cinema has more room for maneuver, but Arizona is indeed a purple state. It's competitive. Both Democrats and Republicans can win. And so she has to worry about trying to win over uh, voters who are in the Republican Party on the old Eisenhower left-wing progressive wing of the party. Voters like me, moderates. And so they have to look out from their bases, and this is how the Constitution was designed, that you care what's going on in your state and you reflect that at the national level. And so they're for spending, but with limits. That is not true of the Progressive Caucus, the Squad, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. Not true of them at all. They want it now, and they particularly want the greatest pieces of social legislation since LBJ's Great Society and indeed FDR's New Deal. They want it now because now is slipping away from them. They know full well that if they wait, that historically midterms bring the opposing party to power, the first president's midterm two years in, almost always brings a landslide to the opposing party, in this case because of the census and the gerrymandering that goes on and the fact that Republicans control state and local government largely in the United States, you can count on eight or nine seats additionally with the new census going Republican, as the Democrats have only a majority of four in the House, nothing. Um, they can count on being in the opposition in 2022 in the House. The Senate is more up for grabs, but if they lose control of the House, game over. And that's if Biden has 50% approval ratings, which he doesn't. They're now in the low 40s, and so Biden can drag down the ticket and at the moment, there could indeed be a greater route in the House, and the Senate is now in play, despite very favorable Democratic senators coming up. And in, as most of you know, one-third of the Senate is voted on each time, and the Democrats, by the swing of the wheel, happen to have a very favorable electoral outcome. But it's now in play because of Biden's increasing unpopularity. All that is the background. So the progressives know if they don't push now, they're going to get nothing. The difference historically, the key structural political risk difference is that when FDR and LBJ were in power, they had overwhelming majorities to pass these massive pieces of social legislation. And in both cases, they got significant bipartisan Republican support for it. Well, that's not going to happen this time. The majority in the Senate is zero. Literally, um, Vice President Kamala Harris has a real job breaking 50-50 ties in the Senate and unique for a vice president, who, as John Adams said, vice presidents are always trying to squelch rumors that they're dead, and Thomas Jefferson is the only man ever to hold the post who liked it because it gave him time to work on his science experiments. Usually this position means nothing. However, in Harris's case with the 50-50 Senate, 
it's very important indeed. But the Democrats can't afford to lose anybody in the Senate and only four people in the House. So the margins of error are negligible as opposed to the time of Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. So given all this, there are two pieces of legislation that the Dems would really like to push. There's the $1.1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, which actually for once in Washington pleasingly means exactly what it says. It's about roads, bridges, uh, increasing broadband to rural communities in the United States, uh, dealing with electric cars and having enough pumps for them, uh, ports in the United States, airports in the United States, all of which are in chronic need of repair and investment. And so they managed to corral a significant number of Republicans to support the bill in the Senate and then send it down to the House. That all sounds reasonable, but the problem is, the big problem is that, that, that there's another piece of legislation, which I'm going to call at the moment the $3.5 trillion progressive wish list bill. You name something the progressives have wanted for the last 30 years, and it's lumped in this ungainly Frankenstein's monster of a bill, which spends money like a drunken sailor, but is less good on how all of this would be paid for. Universal child care, uh, universal, sorry, pre-K education, free community college, free everything, frankly, um, subsidized increasing Medicare subsidized college spending and debts and loans. All these things are lumped into this bill. Pretty much everything the Democratic Party has wanted is in this bill and without much means to pay for it. And they know if they don't do it now, it will never happen. So having passed the Senate, the House members said sensibly in their view, let's tie the two bills together. We won't vote. We progressives. And the House tends to be far more progressive for the Democratic Party than the Senate. We won't vote on this Senate-enacted bipartisan bill until the Senate votes on our wish list bill. And once we know we're going to get that, yeah, we'll vote yes to the bipartisan bill. We know the roads in America are a joke and are in need of repair. So we're in favor of that, but only if we get the big bill. Well, under an awful lot of pressure, Speaker Nancy Pelosi finally caved and separated the two bills and said, moderates get to vote on the infrastructure bill apart from the wish list bill in the Senate. And all hell broke loose, predictably. And the progressives said in the Democratic Party, if we don't get what we want, we will not vote yes for the bipartisan bill, which has the votes in the House and could be enacted into law. If the Senate doesn't move, meaning particularly the two senators, Manchin and Cinema, causing trouble, if they don't move, uh, we're not going to move either. And so it's all or nothing. Well, this terrifies everyone. Manchin and Cinema are outraged, but the progressives managed to win over Joe Biden and uh, get their way. And so on one level, Everything is going along nicely for the progressives. They've retied the two bills. There is no separate vote on just the bipartisan bill. There can't be because if there were, they would. the House progressives feel they would lose their leverage. And so they can't do that. So they win and the two bills are tied together again. You know, hurrah, good for them. Um, but on the other hand, Joe Manchin now says, well, I'm going to give you a real number. We won't live with anything like $3.5 trillion in spending that would philosophically make the United States into just another European entitlement society, and we're not prepared to do that. So as a result of this, he says simply, instead, 
I'm going to settle for $1.5 trillion. That's how much I can do. So Biden goes to the progressives and says, look, we will tie the two bills together. We'll give ourselves another month, having failed on our last fake deadline. We'll give ourselves another month to make this happen. But you're not going to get $3.5 trillion. And he mentions numbers in the low two range. 1.9 to 2.3, Biden says he could live with. The progressives scream they won't accept Manchin's 1.5. Now, in a way, you see this moving forward. You say, well, okay, Manchin's at 1.5. The progressives say they can live with 2.3. There's a bargain at around $2 trillion here. You link the two bills together, and Biden gets everything. And indeed, that might well happen. Both sides have had to compromise this week. In, in between all the stories of dysfunction, they have actually compromised the moderates glumly accepted the two bills are still linked in the House, and progressives glumly accepted they're not going to get Christmas here in the middle of autumn. The, the $3.5 trillion number is a pipe dream that if they're lucky, uh, they'll do just fine and get something in the low two range or $2 trillion. So rational people, people who are in the business world, pragmatic people would say this one is easy, except, as my friend said, they're Democrats. And the death instinct, as Freud would put it, is strong amongst them. And there's an awful lot of bad feeling and friction in this process that really the senators, Cinema and Manchin, and a few others hiding behind them, think that the progressives and the party are irresponsible children who are dooming them to greater defeat because spending money like water is not popular ultimately in what amounts to a center-right country. And although in theory the polling numbers for both these bills are popular, independent numbers are sliding on the Democratic wish list bill. And independents determine who win elections. And the numbers are now a majority are against the second bill because they worry about inflation correctly and they worry about spending correctly. And losing independence means losing the election. And yet again, the Democrats can be tarred with a brush that they're drunken sailors spending money now and worrying about the consequences later. So there's bad feeling from the moderates, but there's also bad feeling from the progressives who say, look, we've waited 30 years. We have negligible majorities. The time is now. We may well lose the House seats historically we're bound to. So if we don't enact our wish list now, we'll never enact our wish list, which is why we got into politics in the first place. So feelings and tensions are on the rise. Don't discount the possibility of human error here, that in lumping everything together in an all-or-nothing way, the Democrats end up with nothing. The odds are still greater that there's an outcome at around $2 trillion. That would be my political risk call. But there is an underrated and significant tail risk that Biden's entire agenda falls prey to the underrated bickering between the progressives and the moderates. On to China quickly and the Italian elections. I got very interested in Biden's agenda, and we may develop further China and Italy next time. We do the tail risk Tuesday. Well, China is simple. If you sup with the devil, you need to have a large spoon. So many banks and hedge funds have gone in so big for China, and when they heard the word China, they simply meant getting rich, that they didn't see all the downsides. Now that they're deeply invested in China, they can't say what we all know to be a fact that China is a huge economic risk as well as a political risk. Let's start with the political risk. It's simple. If China, as I've said, by the end of this decade, goes to war over Taiwan, the Indo-Pacific, the source of most of the world's future growth and most of the world's future political risk,
becomes a huge problem and we have global recession, if not depression, off that calamity. That is an overwhelming tail risk that could certainly happen. But beyond this, China's also done a lot under Xi Jinping to queer the economic pitch. Xi is much more like Mao, ironically, although Xi's father, who was a princeling, um, was subjugated under the Cultural Revolution and Xi himself was sent out into the countryside in disgrace. He has somehow aped the policies of his former tormentor and sees capitalism there at the service of the party. Recently, he slammed down hard on Jack Ma, Alibaba, Tencent, a number of other things and cracked down to some extent on the overhyped, overbubbling um, real estate market in China. And in both these cases, he said the party comes first and capitalism comes second. So rather than following Deng Xiaoping's policy, We'll keep political control, but economically, you can largely do what you want. Xi has once again inserted himself into meddling into successful companies and worse, propping up state-owned enterprises, the SOEs, who become zombie companies, become far less efficient. So he's propping up the weakest aspects of China's economy, the state-owned enterprises, at the expense of financing for the prosperous private sector. At the same time, he's trying to crack down on what he knows is the overbubbled real estate market. Evergrande, which is the current problem, one of the biggest, which is having trouble meeting its creditor terms, is likely to be intervened in terms of the government propping it up, but under rather onerous conditions. And there are another 19 Evergrandes out there. There is certainly the room for a colossal error here as the Chinese meddle with the market and do so inefficiently as they did so over demography with the one-child policy. And this brings me to the larger problem with China. It's going to get old before it gets rich. The one-child policy has seen to it that the workforce in China is set to lose 200 million workers and gain 200 million old people without the safety nets we have here in the West. And so it's going to get old before it moves up the value chain quickly enough. It's in a race to do so. This very difficult process that few countries have managed. One thinks of Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, but most countries get caught in this middle income trap. And with the demography really weighing against China, with Xi meddling in economics, and with huge geostrategic risk out there, all these comp com companies around the West, banks, hedge funds, etc., that when they heard China just said, let's go all in, that means we're going to get rich are now supping with the devil and don't have a long enough spoon and aren't addressing this huge tail risk when hedging is the logical way forward. Look at booming India, whose demography is wonderful. It's the only major country in the world with a generation's worth of catch-up growth that's already growing at the rate of China, and that will increase as well as it becoming the most populous country in the world in the next couple of years. So India, factory Asia, meaning Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines are all booming because they can undercut China on worker prices. And so already this was happening even before Xi started ineptly meddling in the market. Nobody's saying the Indo-Pacific isn't where it's at. Nobody's saying leave the China market. But given the significant tail risk that all the China cheerleaders with their careers and their own stock portfolios mortgaged to the hilt don't address, someone has to say the emperor isn't wearing clothing and it's me. Be bearish about China, see the tail risk, and hedge in the Indo-Pacific. And lastly, for fun, the Italian elections briefly. 
One of the interesting things that's happened in mainland Europe and France, Germany, and Italy, the big three, is that the old established moderate centrist parties have fallen away. In France, those used to be the socialists and the Gaullists. This time around, again, it's likely to be Macron and Le Pen still, though there is some doubt here. Uh, there's likely to be Macron and Le Pen in next year's spring and summer presidential runoff elections. There are two rounds. Um, leaving out the two big parties. The socialists are nowhere near being serious at the presidential level with the uh, Gaullists just slightly more, more viable. But we're likely to have two parties that are basically factions that are there to promote personalities rather than parties. So this has hollowed out French democracy at the national level, although both Gaullists and socialists are still very important locally. In Germany, the same thing. The SPD and the CDU each got very low vote totals, under 25%, while other parties rose, like the Greens, the Free Democrats, the far-right AFD, and the Linka hung in there. So in each case, the old CDU-SPDay coalition, which could be counted on winning 75% of the national vote, is now winning around 50, a hollowing out of the old parties. The same story in Italy, where the old Christian Democratic Party, long gone, was supplanted by Berlusconi's Forza Italia on the center-right, which is fading. Um, and on the left, you still have the kind of moribund PD, unloved, but still there at 19% of the vote. But you also have the populist five-star coalition, you have the Liga party, and you have the far-right brothers of Italy. And in fact, in the last political poll of polls, if the election were held today, it would be narrowly won at about 20% by the far-right brothers of Italy, with the League just an eyelash behind them, and the usual centrist PD, center-left PD, just an eyelash behind that at 19%. Those three parties are grouped at around 20%, with five-star becalmed at about 14%. Well, this is all fine being hollowed out as long as you have individuals in power precariously on their own personality who can make things happen. In Macron, you certainly have a safe pair of hands. In terms of Germany, there's still enough movement that the SPD under Olaf Scholz are likely to lead the coalition. But what about Italy? The next election in Italy must be held at the latest on June 1st, 2023. Mario Draghi, the highly respected former head of the ECB, most respected man in Italy, both nationally and internationally, who's established a large, broad coalition of almost all the parties, with the exception of the Brothers of Italy, to govern. All that sounds nice, but it's dependent not on a structure, but on the heartbeat of one guy who's in his 70s. Literally, Italian stability is dependent on Draghi. If Draghi leaves the scene, as he says he will, by 2023, having hopefully by then spent wisely the windfall that's coming from the EU post-pandemic to prop up Italy, having spent this wisely and done some reforms, he's done rather well starting with the judiciary, but with him out of here by 2023 and us dependent on his heartbeat for the stability of Italy, this is a huge tail risk. Even if he leaves in 2023, the same clowns driving the same clown car are running things, and you could well have say the election were today, the results, the far-right brothers of Italy in coalition with the League, who have a deal which be between Mario Salvini, who is the leader of the League, and the uh, brothers of Italy, whoever comes out on top gets to dominate that group. So it's not 20%, it becomes 40%. So you could have a far-right populist Italian government as quickly as 2023 using today's poll numbers. And nobody's talking about this because everyone's happy Mario Draghi's there for now. 
The goal of political risk and tail risk is to see ahead slightly beyond this morning's newspaper, and that no one seems to do anymore. Instead, most of my competitors react like fruit flies to what's going on. Look closely at Italy and follow these numbers and follow the health of Draghi because you don't want the stability of the country to be dependent on the heartbeat of any one man. That is a weak institutional society prone to high tail risk. So in each of these cases, Biden's agenda, China, and the Italian elections, although it's likely there is no problem, there is a 30 to 40% chance there's a huge problem, and these are underrated tail risks that was fun to go through with you. If you see the risks in the world, you see the reward. Thanks very much for listening to the Around the World in 20 Minute podcast. Uh, I'm overwhelmed by how many of you have subscribed and how well this is doing. We're devoting more and more of our time to it because I love the freedom that Substack gives me to say exactly what's likely to happen analytically and give you the absolute best political risk advice in the world that I can and have some fun doing it. Please do subscribe if you haven't. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70 a year or the $7 a month, the Starbucks price we're asking to continue along with us. Substack only works on the honor system, and we're going to move more and more of our content over as one does to the paid subscribers. Please, if you like what we're doing, if you listen regularly, if you enjoy the things we're up to, the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, the Patrick Henry podcast, the three things to think about today, the book serializations, the other articles, we're really putting a tremendous amount of world-class content out there for you, and we're asking for a Starbucks in return. And on that note, I'm going to go enjoy my coffee now. Have a lovely day.